Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, it is good to see everyone. A few years ago, I was invited to speak at a middle school retreat and was up there for the first night. It was a, a retreat where a group of Methodist churches all kind of got together and they brought their kids together. And so a few hundred kids and I'm up there first night of the retreat. And the great thing about retreats like this for preachers is you get to use your best stuff. So if you're preaching every weekend, not every thing is a home run. I know that might surprise you and you might not agree with that assessment, but sometimes things work better or worse than maybe you'd hope that they might work. But itinerant speaking, right, a retreat or a one-off event, this is, this is heaven, right? I mean, you get to use your best stuff, your most proven stuff, your funniest stuff. It's like a comedian shooting their, their Netflix special, right? I mean, they've got it all honed in. And so I'm in the zone. I'm ready to go. I'm on big stage. There's fog. There's lights. I'm really feeling it. And I get up there, and I'm going, and, and the kids are really laughing, and, and they're really kind of talking to each other and making comments towards one another. And, and for kids, sometimes it's a good thing. You know, they're kind of pointing something out that you've said and talking about it. And afterwards, I get off the stage, and I can just feel it in the room that all these kids want to come and talk to me. I mean, they want to come and share. And I'm thinking, kind of like a Jonah-type revival, a whole city just converted. Like, let's cancel the retreat. There's no, no need for two more days, right? We just all did it right here right now on Friday night, and I, I get backstage, and I check my phone um, before the onslaught of kids, and I have a text from my beautiful wife. She said, heads up, your zipper was down the entire time. <laughs> and the video people, if, if they knew or if they didn't, they were playing with you, they had it so that it was, it was waist up, and I mean, it was right there for, for everyone to see, and and, and sure enough, this is what all the, the children wanted to talk to me about, was the fact that I'd given this 40-minute sermon, I'm sure full of insightful and funny things, but with my, my fly wide open. And, and no matter what I did that weekend, I had to accept that I was the joke, that there, there would be no story I delivered that was going to be funnier than me and my presence and what had happened that Friday night. Last week, we began looking through the story of Jonah together, and I invited you to invite Jonah into your life as a companion partner for the season of Lent. And, and we talked about how Jonah is kind of a funny story. It's kind of a comical story. And, and I wanted to, to, to begin this morning by reminding you of that truth. Jonah is kind of a, a comedy. It's, it's a funny story. But it is important at all times that you remember that you are Jonah. Like me at this retreat, the joke is on you. The joke has to always be on you because what happens is there's this temptation for you and I as Christians, as readers of the Bible. There's this kind of insidious moralism that really seeps its way into sometimes how we read the Bible. We, we read stories and, and we come up with interpretations and meanings and messages from those stories. And it so easily occurs to us how wrong and off other people are in the world and how much they should be more like us. And, and so we, we see Jonah, and we see Jonah disobeying God and doing these things which seem kind of stupid, almost, almost hilariously stupid. And we go, aha, this is just like those other obviously stupid and disobedient people that I know in my life. And even myself reading over the past two weeks, I've had to again and again resist this temptation. If, if the conclusion that I'm coming to as I'm reading this story is I'm noticing all the Jonas in my life 
the only guarantee I have is that I, I still probably haven't gotten the message. The joke is on, on me. It's, it's in my ability to relate to Jonah, to see myself and my flaws and my disobedience in him, which will allow me to, I think, be faithfully shaped and formed by this story and by this text as we follow Jesus. And so it's a funny story. It gets funnier as we continue this morning. And so let me invite you to turn there with me. Jonah chapter 2 is where we'll be this morning, part 2 of our journey through the book of Jonah. Last week we looked at chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. If you weren't with us, I'd encourage you to check it out online uh, on the podcast. We really dug in deep and, and tried to set a solid foundation for Jonah 1. And, and some things will change, and so the focus will be a little bit different here this week. But, but a lot of it really builds off of what we were able to establish and look at and ask ourselves last week as the story got started. We can recap the story real quickly. God comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. This is a city Jonah doesn't want to go to. We explored this question last week. Jonah says, I'm going to go in the opposite direction. And so some things start to get flung. God flings a great wind. He gets on this boat with these sailors. And then Jonah himself gets flung off of the boat. In fact, he, he, he has to get off of the boat. Somehow we go from God speaking a command to a prophet, a prophet of God, and then that prophet going, it'd be better for me to die than to do this. It'd be better for me to, to get tossed into this ice-cold, dark, salty water and sink to the end of my life than for me to obey what God has asked me to do. And we ended in verse 16 of last week, a very interesting, beautiful, profound, funny, challenging, subversive story with a bunch of foreign Gentile sailors now sailing on their way with a little less cargo, with an interesting story to tell and a new God to worship, and with a prophet sinking to what seems like his death. And we pick it up in verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. That you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now this is the story that most people are familiar with, or the most familiar with. This is the part of the story, I think, that most easily gets cemented in our imaginations, both as individuals and as a collective society. The book of Jonah is actually divided into two parts pretty neatly. 
And so there's chapters one and two, and then we kind of start over in a sense in chapter three, and, and there's these two distinct parts, and it ends in this first half a lot more concretely and comfortably than it will end in the second half of the book. And this, among other reasons, are why a lot of times when we tell the story to children or recount it in Sunday school, we just kind of end the story after chapter two. Because not only do some things that we're uncomfortable with happen in the second half of the story, but it's also just a lot harder to explain. There's not a nice ribbon and bow underneath it. And so it's harder to sanitize. It's harder to sterilize the story. But if you're looking for comedy, and if you're looking for an interesting tale, we still have it. Jonah here gets tossed into the water. He gets his wish. He he wants to go into this water. He wants to find the end of his life in this water. And then all of us, I think, can viscerally kind of imagine the experience that now takes place as he sinks into the black salt water, as his breath gets taken away from him slowly and surely. He's met by the open mouth of an unknown monster with vacant eyes, with unknown intentions. And he is swallowed up and finds himself on his knees in the belly of a fish. Now, if this seems a little ridiculous to you, don't worry. It would have also seemed ridiculous to ancient people who wrote this story and heard this story. We, we too easily get caught up in questions of, did this happen historically or literally, or did this not happen? Usually what I've found is, no matter which which perspective you take, they both serve as a way, as a means of avoiding the actual confrontation or challenge of the story of Jonah. Does this make sense? There's some people say, this doesn't happen, fish don't swallow people, and so Jonah doesn't really have anything to say to us. And the other people are like, no, 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 fish definitely do swallow Jonah, and so the Bible is true, and we can trust the Bible, and they both kind of conveniently sidestep what it might mean to think about and meditate and really deal with this prophet of God who finds himself in the belly of the fish and praying in the belly of the fish. This is most of chapter two is his prayer. It's a perhaps surprising prayer to you and I. It's perhaps a little bit of a, a late prayer. Perhaps there's no right wrong time to pray or too late of a time to pray, but if we were going to give Jonah some advice, some life coaching, we'd say a few days earlier probably would have been preferred here. But it's in the belly of the, the fish. Jonah is encouraged and able and and willing to pray. And then what's, I think, the most explicitly funny part of the whole book is the end here. The Lord spoke to the fish. Now, the Lord speaks to various things and elements in the story, to prophets, to the winds, to the elements of the world, to these animals. And they all seem to have no problem doing what the Lord has asked them to do, except for Jonah, except for his people, his prophet. It's the stubbornness of his people that seems to get in the way of his plans. I don't know if there's anything we can relate to with that message, with that narrative structure here today. But the Lord spoke to the fish. We don't know the conversation exactly, but, but the best part of this whole story, I think, and this is all, I mean, this is your money, this is all, all the money right here. What does the fish do? The translation here in the ESV that we're reading really helps you out. This is a, a, a nice literal translation. He vomits Jonah up. This is an anticlimactic rescue. This is not a cute Sunday school like, and, and Jonah very safely kind of crawled out of the mouth of the fish. And it was real cute and clean and nice. This was not an act of rescue as much as it was indigestion. I mean, the, the, the connotation of the tale almost goes as far as to say that 
like the fish is kind of disgusted by Jonah. Like it's not worth having inside of him and digesting. Like the fish is kind of like of all the prophets I could have found in the ocean, I found the most disgusting, most disobedient, nastiest one. I can't even handle this. And up he goes and he's on dry land. And it's an interesting story and it's a challenging story. And the story of Jonah, like I suggested last week, is short and as somewhat familiar as it might be to some of us, has never let me down when I've come to it with a true or deep or profound question. New layers have always opened up to me. And so I want to explore a couple of these with you this morning. It is, I think, the case that it's this scene which makes Jonah such a powerful story, which which has ensured that we would be talking about it here right now, that it's in our Bible, that it's preached in Christian worship services, that um, people of different faiths, actually, faiths of Islam and Judaism, that they all look at this story, this tale, and they derive meaning from it and direction into how they might worship. If you took the exact same story, I think, and instead of some trouble with a fish, you just had Jonah come down with a respiratory virus and he took some, some antiviral meds, and stayed home for a few weeks, and then he was back on his way towards Nineveh, I think we would have put that in another category of stories that perhaps were interesting or weird, but are not going to get passed down and kept and put into our Bible. It's something to do, I think, with the imagery of this fish. There's something very profound and deep, I think, about the picture of a human being on their knees in the belly of a fish that resonates with our experience of what it means to be a human, with what it means to follow God, and with what it might mean for you and I to continue to navigate the world that we find ourselves in as followers of Jesus. Jonah encounters a storm. He's not alone in encountering the storm. There are sailors there with him, and then he encounters this fish. And Jonah being swallowed up by this fish ends the narrative arc that we begin at the very beginning of chapter 1, which is Jonah's descent. If you remember, Jonah went down to the port, he went down onto the ship, he went down into the sea, now he goes down into the belly of the fish. Symbolically, for an ancient Near Eastern person, Jonah is now as far away as he could be, not only from God's plan for him, but also from God's presence itself. The ancient Near Easterns, they symbolized the ocean as a world of chaos and destruction and evil. Um, even though they could, in their confessions, acknowledge that God was in control over it and God was sovereign over it, it still remained a very scary place for them. And they were not alone in joining other ancient cultures and telling tales of Rahab and Leviathan and these sea monsters that roamed underneath. Right? It's not the monsters we can see that scare us the most, it's the monsters we can't see but know are there. And so Jonah is living out an ancient Near Eastern person's, like, worst nightmare. Like, he is living the cultural nightmare of this world as he descends into the sea and then down into this fish. The geography is important as well. We get a mention of the temple in Jonah's prayer. Jonah is, again, as kind of far away as he could be from where he might otherwise supposed to be, according to the narrative. So the Hebrew people, if they were to draw a map of the world, they would have told you that the temple, Jerusalem, where God had decided to dwell with his people, was the middle of the world. And we might look at that now with satellite pictures and our globe and be like, I don't know if that works to scale, okay? I don't know if that's really truly the middle of the world, if there is such a thing as the middle of the world. But for the Hebrews, they still might argue with you a little bit because it was as much a theological point for them as anything else, right? This was the place God had decided to dwell with his people. 
This was the place you could come and interact with the living, creating, and redeeming God. And as Jonah finds himself in the sea, on his way away from Nineveh, and then now in the belly of the fish, he is as far away as one might imagine they can be from God. And yet, it's in this context, Jonah begins to pray. Here's a deep truth I think you will be able to agree with. The storms that come into our lives, the the messy fish situations we get into, one of the things they do in our lives, one of the things they do for us, one of the things that they can't help but do is reveal things to us and to other people about ourselves. When a storm comes into your life, when you get swallowed by a big fish, metaphorically, I'm assuming this hasn't happened to you literally, what, what often happens is that pressure and that stress, that confusion, whatever that situation might be, it often reveals a whole lot about who you are to yourself and to the people around you. It reveals what type of person you are. It reveals what type of person you are becoming. The sailors, I think, come out looking pretty good here from chapter one. If you remember, the storm hits and they start throwing off cargo to try to save life. This is cargo that they're not carrying just because it meant some sentimental value to them, right? This is money. This is, this is valuable stuff. They're trying to transport it to sell it or trade it, and they're trying to get rid of it, right? They're praying to God. They're, they're seeking uh, divine revelation. Jonah, the prophet of God, again, on the other hand, is sleeping and wants to die and isn't praying to God at all. The storm comes, and the sailors are revealed as actually pretty decent people, breaking apart our stereotypes of what we would expect to have thought about these foreign pagan sailors. When the storm comes and when the fish arrives, what's revealed about Jonah? Well, Jonah finally finds his voice, and he finally begins to pray and to reach out to God. And the prayer we're given is a very, very interesting one. Looking at the prayer, you might think this is a, a pretty profound prayer. You, you might be able to, to look and analyze through it and see lots of places and ways in which Jonah expresses a very deep and beautiful theology, trust and confidence in God. There's very interesting things about this prayer that pop out to us, one of which is it's in the past tense for most of it. Do you notice this? It kind of reads more like a narrative than a, a prayer Jonah kind of speaks as if he's on the other side of the story already, kind of knowing what has happened already. And we might credit this to Jonah's account, okay? When Jonah gets pressed and squeezed, what's revealed? Well, Jonah comes to God in prayer. In the Old Testament, for the ancient Israelites, there were two types of prayer. Broadly speaking, there were laments, prayers of complaint, of need, and there were prayers of thanksgiving. There were thank you prayers and help prayers. And what we would expect from Jonah in the belly of this fish here is what? A help prayer. I mean, that's what I would expect from Jonah, particularly from just what I might infer about Jonah from his actions so far in the story. Instead, what we get is a mashup of some of the the Psalms' most used Thanksgiving prayers. So so if you were to read this prayer and you were really familiar with the book of the Psalter, the, the book of Psalms, what you'd find is that every line in this prayer pretty much references, echoes, or quotes, or alludes to 
multiple other verses from the Psalms. You might forgive someone, a scholar perhaps, by looking at this prayer and saying, this seems kind of cliche or bland. I don't know if you've ever been around this or experienced a sermon like this or overheard a prayer like this where people just kind of took like the five most used phrases about God and mashed them up all together. This is kind of how Jonah's prayer comes out. He seems like a person who knows the Psalms very deeply, but also like a person who who maybe perhaps isn't giving it his best effort here. At the very least, it's very interesting. I would, if I was in this situation, have a much more literal approach to my prayer. It would definitely be a prayer of help. It would be like, look, Lord, I found myself digested by a fish. You know I have these tendencies. The smells are unpleasant. What's about to happen to me next, the journey out of this fish, I'm not looking forward to either. It would be very interesting words and thoughts and phrases coming out of my mouth, but perhaps not what Jonah gives us. Instead, what Jonah gives us is a description of a human being experiencing something very profound, very deep, and very changing, transformative. He, he describes where he is. He's in the belly of the fish on, on a very literal level. He's crying out of my distress in verse 2, talking on an abstract level about his feelings, and then Out of the belly of Sheol, he says, he cries. Sheol is the Hebrew word for death, the place of death. And and we shouldn't think of it like life after death. Um, We shouldn't think of it like even the New Testament terms, Gehenna, um, for like a place of punishment. In the Old Testament, Sheol was just where flesh went to be dead. It It was where dead things were dead before Jesus came and changed everything. There was no life there. There was no hope there. It was, it was just nothing. It was sometimes translated in our English as hell. This is the vivid, poetic description of Jonah's experience. Jonah says, I've found myself now in death itself. I've found myself in the pit of hell. And the rest of his prayer kind of follows out of this vivid, poetic description. It has little to do with the fish or the literal situations of his journey or experience so far. It's about a man who's found himself because of his own disobedience and own ways, crying out to God from Sheol. It's very interesting. He finds his voice. You heard my voice, he says. This is, again, kind of funny, ironic, paradoxical. There is, I think, no hearing someone's voice from the bottom of the sea or from the belly of a fish. He talks about looking towards and longing for the temple again while he is in this sea in the belly of the fish. Storms, fishes, they reveal who we are and what type of person we're becoming. We learn about them, how we approach life, what we expect about God, what our orientation is to the world around us. Storms and fishes also do something else, though, very profound for us. In the economy of God, in the way that God works in our complex and mysterious world, it's often the case that storms and fishes bring redemption and bring rescue. For many of us, I think our assumption when we come to a story like Jonah and we come to everyday situations in our own lives is that we long and hope for God to rescue us from the storms, to rescue us from the bellies of the fish. What if instead it's the case that God brings those storms and he brings those bellies in order to rescue us? 
in order to redeem us. I mean, in fact, this is kind of how the narrative is given to us. If anything, the, the fish that shows up here is kind of part of God's providence or grace towards Jonah. Again, maybe as terrible as it might be. We're told right before the prayer begins that this is a fish the Lord appointed. He governed. He, he prepared for this fish to show up and to get the prophet Jonah here. Often, I think it's the case that where we encounter a situation where we lose a job or a relationship crumbles or the finances tank or a loved one dies and we want to cry out to God and say, will you rescue us from this destructive, confusing, fearful, hurtful place that perhaps God has actually been preparing this time, this moment, this situation to bring something good, to rescue or to redeem. A man, a human, on his knees in the belly of the fish. There's something, I think, profound about that image. There's something, I think, that makes it sticks in the, the cement, if you will, in our mind. Jonah describes it pretty well for us as he talks about the seaweed kind of overtaking his head, the life being kind of brought out of his very own body. Different military groups over the years have, have come up with different ways to hurt other people. Water torture has been one of these ways, and, and, and one of the common kind of denominators here is a, a method you might be familiar with. It's called waterboarding. And what happens here is, is basically you, you run some water up the victim's nostrils and into their mouth, and it makes them think that they're drowning, and it induces the physiological and psychological effect of drowning. People who've experienced say it feels like I'm dying. This is where Jonah is in the belly of the fish. This is perhaps one of the reasons why the prayer is in the past tense, because it perhaps is too terrible to actually imagine in the present tense. It can only perhaps be spoken of on the other side of being redeemed from it. And this is an experience I want to ask. I mean, does this resonate with us as human beings? Is there something about this experience being swallowed up by the fish that seems to so accurately describe what it's like to be a human being? Have you ever been running from your own issues only to end up confronting them in a messy and terrible situation which you wish you could have avoided in the first place? Anyone? Have you ever started a long walk of disobedience only to finally end up in a place perhaps surprising to you where you begin the conversation or argument that you were running from the whole way? Have you ever decided not to go to God with something, in fact, to run away from him, only to find yourself somewhat perhaps forced to begin that discussion with God that you were running from in the very first place? I think we can all relate to Jonah here in many ways, in many profound ways. Jonah goes on this dark sea journey, a, a dark night of the soul, if you will. And it's in the whale's belly, the fish of uh, the belly of this fish, where Jonah finds the space and the place where he feels safe enough to actually start to give voice to his thoughts, to reach out to God. What if this is true? I mean, what if this is how life works for you and for I? The storms 
and bellies that come our way actually come as a means of redemption and rescue, not a means of judgment. That's not what we need to be rescued from as much as it is an invitation to ask, what am I being rescued from? Where am I being invited to go forward with God? Jonah spit out of this whale, vomited out, and he's all mucusy. Probably doesn't smell that great. And in one sense, he's back to where he began. We'll see as chapter 3 picks up, kind of picks up the same way chapter 1 started. But in another way, you can't undo all of that happening, right? You're a different person somehow because of this. But what's different in Jonah is not that he's like completely changed his mind and is just a new man, like a very simple conversion story. We'll see it's just not that easy with the prophet Jonah. But he is on a new path. There are new things opened up to him. Something has changed profoundly. The deviation from his path was somehow found to be the path itself. The death of things is sometimes its beginning. Sometimes nothing can be begun without such a death. Sometimes the storm in the belly is God's means of rescue and redemption. There's a deep that goes beyond the deep. Where God's people sometimes find themselves and then learn the lesson that God is there. And even there, God can save them and will save them. There's a baptism that you and I are called into as Christians. where We are united with Christ in the deep darkness of his crucifixion. Only to be assured that like Jonah, we will return and live to see the next day. United with Christ in his resurrection. This is a lesson that we all need to learn. We, we still have a future even when we're swallowed up by these great monsters of the deep. The meaning of exile, the meaning of this swallowing for the Israelites, for Jonah, for you and I, is not destruction, but penitence. And this is where perhaps Jonah again forms a natural companion partner to us in the season of Lent. A season where we are invited to think through how we might be called to repent to perform acts of penitence, to change our thinking, to change the way we're walking and stepping, to reorient our lives. See, this is the third thing that storms and bellies of fishes do for us. They reveal and they redeem and they also reorient. You can never quite be the same after experiencing something like this. And it's often the case that if you've gone through something like this, something so disorienting, so disruptive, so dark, that you might not know exactly where you're supposed to go afterwards, but there is this sense that you have now started to address, you've now started to confront, you've now started to work through something which will ultimately be of great good for you, which will ultimately deepen and, and enrich your relationship with God. The imagery of being thrown into a raging ocean and sinking down to a dark and wet, airless death away from all other human pity, drowning in your own faults, only then to encounter the gaping mouth of some monster approaching you. This is an experience that perhaps more of us have lived than we would at first recognize by reading the story. This is an experience psychologists would suggest is actually very true of the human experience. 
that there seems to be one of two paths for most human beings. They either at some point in their life or repeatedly throughout their life go through these moments of great change and turbulence that sometimes feel very destructive and, and, and feel very painful, feel very much like they're not from God, and they come out of it changed and grown with new knowledge, with new action plans or steps, or they come out of it further shut off to the darkness that sometimes lives inside of them, to the pain and trauma that has been caused to them. There's a, I think, very easy to see here image of rebirth with Jonah and the whale. And there's a very bizarre text, uh, detail in the Hebrew text, which, which doesn't really ever get pointed out. The fish goes from masculine to feminine by the end of chapter 2. The last time the great fish is referred to, it's in the feminine. And I think this makes it all the more difficult to not see this image of rebirth, an image that's very biblical, an image that, again, you see scattered throughout even the psychological literature as human beings have tried to analyze their own experience and how they get through that type of experience. It is when you and I are confronted with our own darkness, with our own issues. It is when you and I are forced to face that which we've been running from, that we emerge new, changed, prepared, and ready. And that doesn't make it fun, and that doesn't make it something to be desired, but it does make it something important and something useful the comedy of Jonah runs throughout. It seems like the prophet or, or the, the narrator describing the prophet's journey is intentionally taking categories that we so often think we understand and that are simple and fixed and then just like for his own amusement putting them before us and crumbling them in front of us. Like the categories of where God is present and where God is not present. Jonah's told to go to Nineveh. Jonah wants to flee from the presence of the Lord, so he goes this opposite direction. And again, I mean, as far away as you can symbolically come up with in a story, Jonah goes and what? God's there. There's nowhere that we can go where God has not already been there and already has a path there for us prepared. The categories of where we think we know God is, where we think we know God works, where we think we know God isn't, God doesn't work, the narrator holds up and says, what if it's more complex than you like to assume or think? Who's on God's team? Who has the inside relationship with God? Just already in the story we've looked at, the the Gentile pagan sailors versus the prophet of God, you would assume the prophet of God and not these Gentile sailors. Again, they're the ones that pray. They're the ones that are valuing life. They're the ones that are seeking divine revelation. Jonah's the one sleeping, wanting to die, not praying at all until he finds himself in the belly of this fish. Who you think is on God's team? Who you think is not on God's team? The narrator holds up in front of you and says, it's not as simple as sometimes you'd like to imagine it. The categories that we come up with in life, the labels we put things in, contemporary, traditional, liberal, conservative, that we often use to then characterize and then demonize other people. There's a wisdom that belongs to people who've gone on the other side of the collapse of those categories. Who understand that sometimes the world is much more complex and mysterious than that. There's something that happens to someone who 
goes into the belly of a fish and comes out where they are, surprised, able to think new thoughts, able to ponder new possibilities, able to entertain a new thing that God is doing, a fresh work from his Holy Spirit. When the storms arrive in our lives or in our world, when we open our eyes up and smell and see the belly of a fish around us, we can be sure it's going to reveal a lot about who we are, where we are. We can be sure that it's being used by God to rescue and redeem, to further his plan in our lives. And we can be on the lookout for the ways in which God will use it to take us to a new place, to think new things, to be prepared for new opportunities. One of the questions that I asked last week, and I don't know, maybe I'll ask it every week during this sermon series, is, is why in the Gospels Jesus chooses Jonah as a prophet to relate to. He does this throughout the Gospels. Of all the prophets that Jesus could have chosen, Jonah seems like an unlikely one. You have here the most obvious reason, right? The parallelism in the three days in the belly of the fish with Jesus' death for three days. And Jesus, in the Gospels, that many of the times where he invokes the prophet Jonah, does allude to this and to his death and resurrection and says, you know, an evil and adulterous generation asked me for a sign, but just like what was given to the Ninevites, a sign of Jonah will be given. I'll go into the earth for three days and I will come out. This is very, very interesting to just jump ahead a little bit. When Jonah ends up going to Nineveh, which he will end up going, he doesn't come with the most prepared, like most like enthusiastic attitude or message for them. He really, his presence is really all they kind of have. He was in the belly of the fish for three days and now he's here and they just kind of work with that and, and, and God uses that for what, it's, what it is. And there's something I think Jesus is alluding to when he says, I'm the sign of Jonah, particularly in the context of other people asking for signs from Jesus, where he says, the sign is not something necessarily Jonah will do as much as it is his presence himself. And, and so it is with Jesus. An evil and adulterous generation which, which you and I are when, when we are prone to doubt and, and to be unfaithful, like Jesus' disciples in the Gospels, we, we relate to this. This is an audience we find ourselves in. They are constantly looking for a sign beyond Jesus, a sign in addition to Jesus. Jesus says, no, 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 I am the sign. Dead for three days, but somehow mysteriously, miraculously alive again present in your hearts, present in the songs of his people, present in the sacraments, speaking to you this morning, whispering your name this March. Lent is an invitation to follow this Jesus. Jonah allows us the courage, perhaps, to go into a deep cave that we've been avoiding. Jonah perhaps gives us the encouragement that maybe that deep cave, instead of being the end of us, will actually be our redemption itself. Maybe what we think is the end of our world is actually the beginning of a new world God has for us. Jesus, I think, is on to this. I think Jesus sees this, this narrative of Jonah and goes, there's something more here than just a disobedient person who's made to be obedient or a person who's going the wrong direction who God then puts on the right direction. No, there's, 
There's something counterintuitive here. There's a pattern here. That the path down for God is the path up. That the path into Sheol is the path into resurrection. That the invitation into the waters of baptism is also the invitation out into a new life. As you and I are invited to follow Jesus, we're invited to this knowledge that assured that we have been crucified with him in our baptism and in our faith, united with him in his death, we can also be assured that there is no depth we will ever find or meet, not here and now in any absurd or horrendous situation and and definitely not in our own physical, literal deaths where Christ has not been and already been and is able to meet us there and take us forward. We're able to come into any situation, any problem in front of us and say, okay, reveal to me what it is I need to see and to understand. Show me how you're working redemptively here. Break apart the categories that need to be broken apart in my heart and in my mind. Invite me into thinking new thoughts. Invite me into being open to fresh expressions of your Holy Spirit. Jonah goes into the belly of a fish and he comes out and something's different. Jesus, likewise, he goes in to the grave. He goes down into Sheol and he comes out and everything is different, friends. Everything is different for you and for me. Everything is different in whatever storms we're currently facing or bellies that we've just woken up in. And we're invited this morning as we now come to the table to accept the invitation to follow this one who has defeated death, this one who turns even the darkest of nights into the glory and beauty of God. How will you respond? What will be revealed about you? What prayers will come out of your lips?